And good morning here on Fuzzy Logic. Now, I'm old enough to remember the moon landings. What a wonderful time it was, a period of enormous optimism and hope. Science and technology could do anything. And in fact, we did, because now we've gone on to make a mess of our planet. And you know the four horsemen of the apocalypse the bible talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse well it turns out there are 10 of them and they're headed this way now to discuss this very difficult question we have a a eminent science writer julian cribb in the studio with us this morning on fuzzy logic and julian has written books his latest is food or war uh, it's written others, including Surviving the 21st Century, Poison Planet, The Coming Famine, and all very difficult topics, Julian. And also joining us in the studio is Tom Street. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Uh, now, Tom has a background in agricultural science, but let's kick off with you, Julian, as our featured guest. What made you write a book like this that is surviving the 21st century and, in fact, your new one, Food or War? Well, basically, the, um, the motivating factor was that I'm a grandparent. I'm producing... Well, my, my children are producing grandchildren for me now, and uh, I want to be sure that those children have a clean, healthy, safe um, and, and vibrant planet on which to live. Um, as a science writer, I've been talking to scientists from all disciplines for decades now. So I've been talking to some of the best scientists in the world. And I've been forming a picture as to what is going on. And I've been bumping... A lot of these scientists were saying to me, we think um, we're into the end game of human history. And I'm saying, are these guys for real? You know, are we actually um, at risk of, of wiping ourselves out? So I didn't know whether this is true or not, but I thought it's possible as a science communicator to actually find out. So I sat down and I went through the best science that I could find on all of the existential threats. And the answer is yes. There are ten huge threats bearing down on us. They are all locked together. You can't solve them one by one. They all have to be solved together. We are facing the greatest existential emergency that the human species has ever faced. Um, but the good news is that most of the problems can be fixed. They can be solved with human ingenuity, with good technology, uh, with good will, um, with us working together as a species instead of um, as a divided um, bunch of brawling nations or you know groups or whatever. So th that's the simple answer. Yes, we can solve our problems. Uh, we can reduce the threat to ourselves that we have created simply by overpopulating our planet, by our massive demands that we have placed on that planet, the huge amounts of resources, the huge amounts of pollution that we generate and so on. Um, but there are, there are answers to all of these things. Well, I, I've always imagined these things as being some time in the future. So I've been aware of threats to humanity for a long time. But the events in the last few months in Australia here really hit at home. And it's not something we can hide from now because, would you agree, we've been talking about climate change. It's obviously the big one, and we'll talk more about that. But to see the fires and to see our city smothered by smoke 
What what do you make of what's been happening in the last few months? Well, I, I, I wrote my first climate story in 1976. Okay, I, I read a paper by CSIRO atmospheric scientists saying the planet was warming. In those days, everybody thought we were heading for another ice age. And they produced the evidence to show that, no, no, the temperature trend was going up, not down. Um, and it, it shocked me. Uh, I was an agricultural journalist at the time, and I thought this has clearly got implications for food. You know, if the temperature changes, rainfall patterns change, food production is going to change. It's, got, it's very important for farmers. Uh, and that means it's very important for everybody because we all need farmers to feed us. So <clears throat> I, I started to take an interest in those things. And then... I read another report. It was called um, the Global 2000 Report to the President. It was published in, 20, in, in 1980, and it was a report to Jimmy Carter. And it basically had all this stuff, climate change, deforestation, ocean acidification, all the things that we're talking about today. But this is like 40 years ago. So we have known about these things in detail, and politicians have known about them for 40 years, and we've done bugger all about them. That is the issue for me. I, I'm, you know, I'm getting on now. I'm getting impatient. You know, beware of an old man in a hurry. That's that's what they say. Um, so I've written four books about the existential risk to humanity, in the hope that it is going to provide people with enough detail about the problems, and enough ideas about the solutions, in order to engender some action. Now, last week on Fuzzy Logic, we were interviewing uh, climate scientist Professor Will Steffen, and he talked about the, the temperature records that we're breaking and the dryness, and I think most of our listeners appreciate that the bushfires are directly related to that. But there are some things to, that have been happening that aren't getting so much attention, and one in particular now, my friend here, Tom, uh, has an agricultural science background, uh, let's talk about that and food production. And by the way, in our backyard we have a couple of little veggie garden plots. Mm -hmm. And even though we've kept the water up, the soil is good, the product productivity of those plots is noticeably diminished. So what's your take on food production and the the bushfires look it's already getting harder and harder to maintain yields of whatever food you're talking about um, with one degree of global warming when we've got two or three degrees in the mid-century it's going to be nightmarish i can tell you what the science is actually saying on that uh, if we don't change radically uh, the, the 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 methods of production if we were just to, to keep on with what we're doing now uh, then you're going to see about a 50% reduction in wheat production in countries like India and China. You're going to see like a 20 or 30% reduction in, in rice, you know, because rice can't tolerate high temperatures, believe it or not, even though it's a tropical crop. Um, so, I mean, the, the, these crops are very susceptible not only to drought and to flood and to, uh, you know, loss of nutrients in the soil, um, but also to heat waves. Uh, heat waves sterilise many of the, of the food plants that we use. And so the agricultural system that we know and love and have had for 10,000 years, and we're basically operating on a Neolithic food system. It has got to change because it is not going to feed 10 billion human beings on a hot, resource-stressed planet. Uh, that's kind of a very daunting number you just said. 50% like, of productivity from farming land is something like that? 
you'd see the the yields will probably be halved say of of, of indian wheat cro- uh, production so, so that mean massive food shortages and starvation for it, it means regional famines basically yeah and, yeah and let's face it there've been famines like this in india and china and elsewhere all through history you know, we're, we're perfectly familiar with the phenomenon and countries like india and china are more than familiar with it, it it's uh, it's hit them time and time again and it, it's it's cost them millions of lives so we know what can happen at the moment because our supermarkets are full of food we are fooling ourselves with the belief that oh you know she'll be right mate uh, everything's okay you know there's always going to be lots of food in the supermarkets look we when the floods came to the sunshine coast in 2011 and they cut off the uh, the roads and the trucks couldn't get through the supermarkets were empty in 48 hours absolutely stripped bare by by frightened consumers mm. now we could see megacities in the world, cities of 20 and 30 million population, absolutely without food within, in less than a week. Because you know, our system at the moment does not produce food in the city or even close to the city. It produces it often thousands of kilometres away. What would cause a city to suddenly be without food? Because imagine if you have a 50% shortfall in agricultural production, yeah. that would mean richer people would still be able to afford food and it would be... So people in Australia would still be able to eat, but it would be more expensive. But it's it's the the really poor people, the sort of people that are living on three dollars a day. They would suddenly no longer be able to afford to right. eat, and they they would starve. The, the the thing that would cause a local food shortage would be something like a local war, uh, a, a, an oil crisis uh, like the one in 1974, for example, a major oil crisis, um, major flooding, even. I mean, with the city of Bangkok. I mean, the city of Jakarta has just been flooded up to its knees, you know, uh, as well. So, so a local food crisis can just simply by cutting the roads basically and the trucks that bring the food to restock the shops every single day don't get through so that's that's a local food shortage affecting one city a city of of, of 10 or 20 million people right but we know what happens when when there are people don't have enough to to eat you know they they yep. start fighting and they even go to cannibalism you know after a period of the spanish have this wonderful saying there are only seven meals between civilization and anarchy Mm. Right, so the first thing that people do is tear the government down. So in 2012, when the uh, Egyptians and the Libyans did not have enough food to eat, they tore down their governments. That's the first thing that goes. Now, looking more widely, if the famine or food crisis is big enough, it brings down the world economy because it, it creates absolute panic um, uh, with, with food all the way around the world. All world wheat has the same price. There's a world market price for wheat. So if there's a critical scarcity in somewhere, the price for wheat gets stampeded up and everybody has to pay, you know, 20 or $30 for their loaf of bread instead of, you know, 5 or $10. So, you know, that affects people, even in Australia, even if we're insulated and nothing happens. Uh, you know, we think of ourselves as food secure in Australia, but actually we're not. And the bushfires is a very clear example of that because the bushfires fall out of a massive drought that has aridified the the landscape you know, the dams are empty the rivers are empty the fish are dying uh, you know we've we've cleared the country to such an, a degree that we have um, destroyed the 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 small uh, water cycle the what which supplies up to 30 percent of your rainfall so you know we're, we're now desertifying turning Australia into a much bigger desert than it was to begin with 
So all these things are compounding, and fires are a, a, a likely consequence of that type of thing. But so is pollution. Uh, you know, when all that soil and ash washes into the into the dams, uh, the fish die again, and we also have a, a pollution crisis with our drinking water. Uh, yes, and there's threats to Sydney's water supply now because of the ash, and that spurs blue-green algae outbreaks and fish kills and so on. And another thing that hasn't had much attention is the days in Canberra when we had smoke coming over, then we get some clear days, and then we were getting dust blowing over that mm. dust, also known as topsoil. Yeah. Is this this kind of uh, brings <coughs> the idea of our civilization as a system. It's a whole lot of interacting parts that all have to work together. So one maybe you can comment on, Julia, is fuel and a liquid fuel, which is really oil primarily, and Australia's liquid fuel energy supplies, I think, are about 11, 15 days, something like that, in reserve. Because we cut back all the uh, onshore production, our onshore storage, and the numbers I've seen were something like 11 days for, uh, we would run out, and then four days with no fuel, supermarket mm. shelves would be empty. Yes, uh, it, it, it goes up and down a bit, but basically Australia has no um, fuel reserve policy. Unlike every other developed country in the world, most of them have 30 or 40 days of fuel in tanks, in stock, in the country, in case there is a sudden shortfall. And, and there have been, I don't know, there have been a dozen oil crises, you know, since I've been around. So, so these things happen quite regularly. If there was a major oil crisis, and most of our oil comes either uh, from the Middle East, or it comes through Singapore and down to Australia, if those sea routes got cut, then Australia, um, basically you would start to see the, the, the oil shortage would bite within two or three days. Basically garages or, or would start to run out of petrol uh, within two or three days because of the panic and the demand. What, what sort of natural um, disaster might cause a, a blockage in the oil supply? Uh, more like a human war. A war, okay. Yeah, so, so, so a, a war, be it nuclear or otherwise, in the Middle East or in the Indian subcontinent or in Southeast Asia. Right. Anything that cut the sea lanes basically okay. would cut off, would, would be like uh, cutting Australia's jugular. And, and because of climate change affecting things like food production and water supply that we've come to depend on, you know, the, the, the crops that we've had in the past, we can't depend on going to continue into the future. In fact, they're probably going to start to fail because things won't grow in the same places they used to. Yeah. And that's going to cause tensions between neighbours, I guess. And, and perhaps lead to a war. and So basically we're, we're destabilising the whole system, is what you're saying. The infrastructure and the um, agricultural climate we've come to depend on, we can't depend on it anymore, and things are going to start not working as they have worked, basically, and that's going to cause all sorts of problems and crises. We, we will see small disasters becoming bigger towards yeah. the mid-century. So, so you might regard the bushfire crisis as a small crisis. Yeah. It will get bigger as our landscape gets drier. Uh, basically, there'll be more fires because that's what we're setting the, con the, the continent up to do. Um, in, in food or war, I've identified seven areas worldwide where water is running out and there is not going to be enough water to grow the food. And those areas are familiar to most people, so the Middle East is already out of water, yet they are going to double their population. 
China is critically water stressed. That's the reason China is going around buying up farms in places like Australia, New Zealand and Africa because they know they cannot feed themselves so they have to buy farms elsewhere in the world to feed themselves. Um, India and Pakistan are on a knife edge over the waters of the Indus. The waters of the Indus are starting to fail because global warming is melting the glaciers in the Hindu Kush and the Himalaya which feed the rivers. So when those rivers cease to flow, there's nothing for farmers to take out to irrigate their crops or part of the year well, round. The glaciers provide, it's like a dam, it's right? Like a dam. Because the, the snow falls in winter and then it sustains flow all through the summer as the glacier melts. Yep. So they still get the precipitation up in the mountains? or do, yeah. yeah. so that just means a big winter flow and then there's no summer flow when you need it for crops, is it, that right? Their, their rivers will start to be very like ours, which is flooding and, and, and then drying out. Right. So, so their rivers will start to follow. Whereas at the it's moment... Like regular flow of glacial melt. Feeding, feeding the 1.4 billion people who live in the Indian subcontinent requires a steady flow of water. So if you disrupt that flow of water, you disrupt the food supply. Then you've got hundreds of millions of Indians looking for a new home. Or India and Pakistan come to blows, and they've already threatened this. Both of them, It's on the record that if, the, if, if either steals the other's water, it means war. They've got 250 nuclear warheads between them. Now, you only need about 50 to 100 nuclear weapons to throw up enough dust and enough smoke to chill the planet by two degrees for ten years. If you do that, crops will fail in Australia. In our wheat belt, the temperatures might drop by as much as four degrees. So, so you would actually see a loss of food production in North America, in China, in Australia and elsewhere if there was a, a nuclear conflict on the sub Indian subcontinent. I've heard... Um and nuclear experts speaking about that particular flashpoint between India and Pakistan as particularly dangerous because they're so close to each other. So back in the time of the Cold War, it would take half an hour, I believe, for a missile to fly from Russia to the USA or vice versa. So they had a bit of a time period to think about what was happening. Um, <laughs> there's not much time, and, and people in the know say that we're lucky that we've avoided nuclear war so far. But then in terms of India and Pakistan, two countries which are perhaps a little less organised than the USSR and the US were, and they've also got, I don't know, it's a matter of minutes or very, very short timescales to assess whether it's actually a nuclear bomb has been launched at you before you reciprocate. So yeah. Anyway, I'd well, that, that's that's a yeah. big uh, that's a big big question there from uh, Tom. We're going to cut to a music break now here on Fuzzy Logic, and our guest today is Julian Cribb, who's a science writer and written books including Surviving the Twenty First Century, and his latest book, which uh, Tom really has just alluded to, is Food or War here on Fuzzy Logic. Sing you a ditty, a sweet little song. It'll just take a minute, it won't keep you long. I'll sing of the days when our love was so new, and we sailed down the Murray River, boys, in a gum tree canoe. We rode, we rode, all the waters so blue. Like a feather we would float along 
in a gum tree canoe. My hand on my banjo, but so on the oar. We'd work all the day and we'd sing as we go. But at night time I'd turn to my Julia so true, and we sail down the Murray River, boys. In a gum tree canoe, we rode, we rode, all the waters so blue. Like a feather, we would float along in a gum tree Float along in a gum tree canoe. I once left the river to go on the land to set myself up as a cocky so grand. But the life didn't suit me. It made my heart sore. I went back to the Murray River, boys. And the junior ones more. We rode, we rode, all the waters so blue. Like a feather, we would float along in a gum tree canoe. And here on Fuzzy Logic, we are talking science. We are talking the future of the planet and very difficult topics, I have to say. Daunting, daunting things. Uh, Julian Cribb is our guest. And his your latest book, Julian, is Food or War. And I have to say it has a dark black cover with heavy, imposing red lettering. It says, and there's a picture of a skull and crossbones and the crossbones are actually a knife and fork uh, so what's the premise of this book uh, Julian what led you to writing this well uh, I wanted people to understand that our biggest impact on the planet is caused by our jawbone the jawbone is the most destru destructive implement that's ever been invented because basically most of the extinction that is happening among the world's wild animals most of the deforestation most of the emptying of the oceans is driven by the human need for food by this vast industrial food system that we've created um, it doesn't have to be that way. Food can be sustainable. But in order to solve a problem, you have to understand it. So I'm sorry if it sounds a bit grim, 
but we do need to understand the nature of the problem if we are going to come up with the right solutions. It's no good solving a problem with the wrong solutions. That's what we've been doing. So if you wanted to sustain the, the, the global food supply, the answer is not to throw more fossil fuels at it, because if you do that, all you'll do is make the climate for producing food worse. So you have to come up with a solution that works, uh, that will sustain the food supply and make sure we are well fed. Now, why do we need to do that? I'm going to take you back in history. Uh, 20,000 years ago, the sea levels from the Ice Age were just starting to rise. Okay, and they came up and up and up and they inundated a quarter of the Australian continent, an area the size of Spain, France, Germany, Italy and Great Britain went underwater. And that means that the fertile coastal fringe of the Australian continent was pretty much cut in half. And the Aboriginal inhabitants of that were squeezed into, literally. So Bass Strait's an example of that, right? And the land between us and Papua New Guinea, that was all land. We were connected to Papua New Guinea, Carpentaria, Gulf of Carpentaria was Lake Carpentaria, uh, that's right, and, and the land went out to Rolly Shoals and Ashmore Reef in the west and things like that. The Great Barrier Reef is where the old coastline used to be. Right, it's so amazing it's, to think of. It's 40 or 50 kilometres out to sea. So, so there was all this fertile country. Well, what happened uh, at that time? All the, 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 the original inhabitants of Australia were squeezed into a much tighter area. And we have, from the Kimberley, the world's oldest battle painting. There's two lines of Aboriginal warriors lined up against one another and they're chucking all of these harpoons and boomerangs at one another and one of them, presumably their version of Achilles is, has gone down with harpoons sticking out of him and, <laughs> and boomerangs having hit him now, why would people be fighting and more especially, why are they fighting not with weapons, but with hunting implements clearly there's a dispute here over food over hunting rights, over access to water or whatever it is there's a basic uh, argument between two different groups of humans about, about how, how you survive. And if you then follow through human history from that point, for, for 17,000 years, you will find that time and again we have been fighting over food, land and water. Land and water being the things we need to produce food. So uh, you have empires rising because they have had vast resources of food. So China and India both arise as societies. The Roman Empire becomes the Roman Empire after they've taken all the good grain farms off the Carthaginians in North Africa. The Roman Empire collapses uh, when, the, when, when there's a climate change and a big plague in the third century and the food supply breaks down. And when the food supply to Rome breaks down, the Roman economy breaks down. And when the Roman economy breaks down, the Romans can't pay their legions. And all the Goths and the Vandals and the Germanic tribes come howling in from the, from the edges of the empire and take over. So, you know, you, you see empires rise and fall, basically, on their food supplies very often. So it's like you were saying before, once people are starving, then water very rapidly deteriorates. What you're saying was, they're saying the nine days, seven, no, seven days... Between uh, civilization and anarchy. Oh, between, okay, seven, between, the seven last, meals, between the last seven meal, meals. Seven, seven meals. meals between civilization and anarchy. It, and I, think, I guess that makes sense if you think about it. If you don't eat for two, three days, all of a sudden you're going to start taking 
whatever you need to survive, aren't you? Like, if, if you see someone else has got some food, you're going to do whatever you have to, probably, you, you in start order to get to, it. You start to blame the government. Yeah. That, that's the thing. So, so in, in the 18th century, there are several famines culminating in the French Revolution. In, in the late 19th and early 20th century, there are several famines culminating in the Russian Revolution. The point is, revolutionaries are always plotting revolution, but they never mm. get they never get an impetus until the people get angry enough with the government to want to pull it down. Mm. So the thing that causes revolution, that civil war, very often is is the failure of the food supply. Yep. If we want a modern example of that, we need only look at Syria, where basically climate change affected an agricultural system that was already, you know, it, its landscape was just about turned into desert. You know, from being a very fertile, well-watered, well-treed landscape, they, they, they farmed it to, uh, uh, to destruction. A million farmers, a, mer- a million Syrian farmers, left the land, were pushed off their farms, went into the cities. There's, there was not enough jobs, there was not enough uh, work for people, people got disgruntled with the government, they started plotting revolution, the Assad government decided to crack down on them, you know, um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and everybody got involved in the, in the terrible mess. The result was a civil war in which five million Syrians had to leave home. And you know, two or three of million of them went and lived in Jordan in, in refugee camps, and they're still there. A million of them went into Europe, and they almost brought down the European community. One million people in a in a community of 330 million, but they were enough to you know to set off a real crisis. So this is an example of how a food issue can build up into a gigantic political and economic. Uh, and, and a general stability issue if you don't get on top of it at the beginning. And what I'm arguing in the book is if we want to prevent wars, and about two-thirds of wars are fought over food, land and water, if you scrape away all the politics and you scrape away all the religion and the ethnicity and other things, you find that people are arguing about the basic means of survival. Indeed, if you, what is a country? A country is a whole lot of borders, but what do they enclose? They enclose your food-producing resources, okay? Your farmland, your rivers, your waters, your, your, your ocean. And they deny that to other countries. That's what a, a nation is. Most people don't understand that about nations, yeah. but they are actually a food entity. Now, we're seeing increasingly cities, uh, urban development, encroaching onto productive farming land. Yeah. And as a child, I lived in Ingleburn, which is now a housing development, but it was very noticeable because it's one of the few areas of really green landscape in Australia. But also, we mentioned earlier in the show, we talked about the topsoil blowing across the cities, and you talked about the fall of the Roman Empire and their uh, ability to provide their people with food. Now, when I asked Michael Jeffrey about this, the former Governor-General, he said that was very closely related to the way they destroyed their soils. Is that correct? Is that how you say it? That's absolutely correct. Yes, I work with Michael on Soils for Life uh, because that is a, a fundamental underpinning is your ability to grow food or to grow pasture for, for animals. Um, you can't have cities without that. There's no city on earth that can feed itself. And if you add it up, the footprint of all the cities in the world, their physical footprint, their concrete and, and you know, asphalt, you would find that it added up to a chunk of the earth the size of Australia. 
This, this is amazing. That that's how much we've urbanised our planet, and that holds at the moment three and a half, nearly four billion people. And some of those cities are getting very close to the edge of the precipice. And I could give you an example of New Delhi, where there's 24 million people, same population as in Australia, and they have got two years of groundwater left for that city. So if they run out of groundwater, I don't know where those 24 million people are going to go, but they can't stay in New Delhi. And this is not me speaking. This is the Indian Supreme Court has warned the government of New Delhi, the, the local government, that they've got two years to fix the water problem. The Supreme Court, do the you know Supreme, why they're involved in I, that? <laughs> I don't, but I, I think they thought that not enough was being done and okay. that they could see the writing on the wall. Uh, so there's a lot of situations like that. We saw Cape Town nearly run out of water. We saw Sao Paulo nearly run out of water. We've seen s cities in California being stressed for lack of water. So humans are pushing up against this boundary, both the water and the soil. Now, if we treat soil for a moment, Humans displace, according to uh, the American Geological Survey, 75 billion tonnes of topsoil every single year. Now that means that each of us displaces 10 kilos of topsoil, that's a bucket full of topsoil, every single meal that we eat every day. So you and I, just today, will displace 30 kilos of topsoil. That stuff is lost, and as we know from Australia, it blows across the, the ocean, it ends up on the glaciers in New Zealand, it ends up in Antarctica, it ends up in all sorts oh, of the places. The Great Barrier Reef. The Barrier Reef, absolutely, destroying the reef. So, so basically, yeah, we're, we're, we are hemorrhaging. I mean, when you looked up and saw those clouds of dust and smoke, you were actually witnessing the disintegration of the Australian continent. And basically, that disintegration is taking place on our watch and as a result of our mismanagement of that continent. Yeah, and as you said earlier, Julian, uh, it's largely invisible to us because we go into the supermarket and there's all the fresh vegetables and so on. And one thing I wouldn't mind following up at a later date is uh, the productive farming land of Australia. So those vegetables that we buy, where are they coming from and where... How have they been affected by these recent fires and, of course, the ongoing drought, which is pretty terrible? Maybe we'll come back to that after a, a song break. I think uh, we might take, give ourselves a, a bit of a breather. Our guest today on Fuzzy Logic is Julian Cribb, who's a internationally recognised science writer, and his latest book, which we've been discussing just now, is Food or War here on Fuzzy Logic. And this, uh, this track, I should say, is from Melbourne, a band called Shock Octopus. Because they couldn't, they didn't have a name. Yeah. 
bit of Shock Octopus there. And by the way, if you buy the single from uh, them, Shock Octopus, you can get them online. In fact, on our podcast, I will put a link. Uh, the proceeds go to the Extinction Rebellion. There you go. Now, on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking food, security, the future of civilization, with our guest, Julian Cribb. And just before the song break, we were talking about... Uh, Agriculture, the productivity of our farming land, and one of the key parts of that is soil, Julian. Now, we've hit people pretty hard with uh, the problem. Let's 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 hit the solutions really hard now, Julian. What do we do to save our soils? Well, Roger, you, you referred earlier to Michael Jeffrey, um, uh, the former Governor General, who runs a, an organisation called Soils for Life, which he founded. And basically what he's trying to do there is find out the knowledge from the best farmers in Australia about how you repair and regenerate the landscape. Because at the moment what we're basically doing is mining the Australian landscape. Farmers are being paid so little by supermarkets that they are forced to overcrop and overstock. So it's an economic problem. Just do everything they can to maximise their profits in the short term and yep. the expense of long-term viability of, the, of their farms. In, indeed. They are forced to farm in ways that they would not themselves naturally wish to farm in. Farmers are, are, are prisoners of the economy and of the giant supermarket chains and, and, the, and the giant agricultural corporations. Uh, and so they're forced, really, to, 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 to work in a way that's not sustainable. But we've been able to identify a couple of hundred farmers around Australia who are pushing back against this trend, and they're hammering out something called regenerative agriculture. And regenerative agriculture is something that, first of all, it, it repairs the soil. Secondly, it brings the carbon out of the atmosphere and back into the soil. So it's locking up carbon, and carbon in soil is fertility. So that means you're actually going to get more food out of the soil, and carbon also acts as a sponge, so it actually absorbs more water. So if we absorb more water into the soils of Australia, we're going to have a greener, wetter landscape, and that means less bushfires, because wet landscapes don't burn as well as dry ones. Yeah. Is an example of this the Maloon Institute, which is out near Braidwood? That's where uh, uh, I understand Michael Jeffrey is involved with that. Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect example. I mean, what they're doing there is they're trying to restore the natural creek and, and a flow of water through the Australian landscape. So it ponds in various different places. It doesn't rush down the creek like a drain or, or a river. It, it, it floods out at various times and it contracts again back into the stream bed. But that waters the whole landscape around that. And that in turn, that regenerates the agricultural ecosystem, the ecosystem that supports 
the farm, the food producing enterprise. Well, uh, talking about water, one thing that assaults my senses every time I see it, is, and then we're talking urban water now, are the concrete spoon drains. Now, past my suburb in Belconnen, there are the concrete spoon drains, and it's the engineering solution. Water is a problem, something that has to be moved away, and it's so destructive. Uh, well, one of the problems of our education system is that they don't teach biology and engineering faculties. You know, so they, they build these concrete solutions which tend to have bad effects elsewhere. Now, you'll notice in a lot of cities they're actually replacing those concrete drains with swales and with artificial wetlands. So they're, they're planting a whole lot of reeds. I mean, where I am up in the Gungahlin area, there's, there's bulrushes and reed beds all the way down following the line of the Gungahlin stream. So, you know, th this is a, a natural, a more natural system. Right, and I, I believe that's, I mean, large part of the reason that you get um, the blue-green algae blooms in Lake Burley Griffin yep. is because you have all the leaves swept off the streets in storm events and they wash down the creeks into the lake and they, that's a nutrient flux that then makes all these algae proliferate and then make the water toxic so we can't swim in it in later in summer. Whereas, so they have those little dams to, to capture the leaves and keep them out of the main water source. So that's, yep. that's it, part of my understanding. It's not just the leaves, it's the soil, but, it's, it's the, the dog poo, it's uh, the, the fertiliser you put on your roses. Mm. All of that stuff goes down and collects in the, in the lowest area, which is Lake Burley Griffin in our case. But I, I don't think that's really... That's not relevant to agriculture. And you, and you were telling us about uh, regenerative agriculture. Do, do you have more to, to say about that, about the solutions? Absolutely. So re regenerative agriculture basically rebuilds the, the ecological system in which agriculture thrives. And that means rebuilding first and foremost the soil and the way water cycles through the agricultural ecosystems. Right, so healthier soils that have higher content of carbon, which is part of the fundamental structure of a healthy soil generally is having exactly um, good exactly. carbon and yep. Yep, levels. So, so if we regenerate our agricultural landscapes, we will have a food system that is much more resilient against climate change, for example. If you've locked far more water in the Australian landscape, uh, then basically we're going to be able to tolerate drought much better than we do at the present time. So, so problems like that will tend to be reduced if we go for these, these, more, these wiser, more conservative methods of farming. Now, Julian, what about things like the type of crop that we grow? Well, uh, the world has 30,500 edible plants, and we currently eat about 200 of them. And indeed, we rely mainly in our supermarkets and that on five crops and five animals. The bulk of our food supply is from those five different crops. So we have our industrial food system is phenomenally narrow and it's actually phenomenally bad for us because four out of five Australians now die by their own hand, which is the hand holding the fork, from a diet-related disease. So, you know, the cancers, the heart disease, these are all diet-related. So uh, we need a much healthier diet than the one we've got. Mm. And the regenerative systems that I've described are capable of producing that. But we need much more diversity, plant diversity particularly, in that agricultural system. Well, we, we talked about a systems approach to doing things and one of the attributes of a resilient system is diversity. Yes, absolutely. Why is that... 
because, well, if you think of it, you're getting a much broader spread of nutrients. Uh, you're getting, you know, m uh, different forms of protein, different amino acids. The, these are addressing all the different parts of your body. I mean, at the moment, we are suffering quite severely from micronutrient deficiencies. Okay. Right, so a more varied diet is a healthier diet. Correct. That's what you're saying. But why does that make a healthier landscape? No, the healthier landscape makes the healthier diet. Oh, okay. So you weren't saying crop diversity will make a, a better landscape? Not by itself. You've okay. got to manage the nutrients within the landscape, and you, you, you've got to unlock the nutrients that are locked up, the micronutrients that are not getting through to the consumer, and that are, as a result, the consumer is getting bowel cancer. You know, so we've got to get those nutrients back into the, uh, the, the food system again if we're going to have a healthier, you know, a healthier population. Right. Uh, so three quarters of the Australian healthcare budget, at the moment, is spent on on these non-communicable diseases that kill three quarters of us. You know, and and th they can't be cured. These diseases they can only be prevented. Are and there any crops, Julian, that you think we should not be growing? Like there's some very water-hungry crops, and uh, people talk about cotton and rice and so on. Are they suitable for Australia? Uh, look, uh, I believe we've got enough of continent and enough water, if used wisely, to be able to grow a much larger diversity of crops. Uh, I would like to see fewer monocultures, um, more polycultures, that's several crops mixed together. Uh, that's a much more resilient thing. It makes better use of the water, it makes better use of the sunlight, it makes better use of the nutrients which are within the soil. So you're talking about growing more than one plant species in a field... So at the moment, generally, we'll grow something like wheat yeah. or pumpkins or zucchinis or whatever it is, and there'll just be wheat or pumpkins or zucchinis in that field and nothing else. At the moment, we grow one crop and we poison everything else. Uh -huh. And the poisons themselves, 5 million tonnes of pesticides are used by agriculture worldwide. And a lot of that comes into the diet as well. So these pesticides or their, their daughter breakdown products are incorporated to a significant degree in the diet, but they're also poisoning the landscape. Is there, is there any evidence that that's affecting people's health, the level of pesticides that we consume? Oh, yes, there is, yes, yeah. very much. It, it, it's, a, it's a very much a growing area. If you read the medical literature on this, the, there's more and more evidence uh, that those kinds of toxins uh, are affecting human health, um, cancer rates and things like that. Uh, so the use of these concentrated poisons, which is what they are, um, does not have good effects, whether it's killing us or whether it's killing honeybees that pollinate a third of our crops, uh, or, or whether it's killing the little algae that are in the soil which unlock the nutrients that we need in our diet. You kill off the algae with a herbicide, basically the soil is not, is not feeding the crop mm. in the right way. So you're getting crops that are, that are nutritionally unbalanced. Got a lot of a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus in them, but but very little of, of of the other things that we need to sustain our lives and 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 our healthy system. So this is where agricultural scientists and nutritionists really need to have a good conversation together right. about how we get the nutrient flow through the human race for good health. And in, in terms of um, the the toxicity effects on humans of our um, pesticide consumption, um, I mean, would, would it be fair to say that? People should first be worried about getting exercise, enough sleep, cutting down alcohol consumption, cigarettes, something like that. Like th those are the really major concerns. And then uh, less concerning is perhaps pesticide consumption. It's not good for you. It's maybe not the top priority. Look, uh, 
I would like to crank out the focus a little bit. Yeah. Humans currently release around about 250 billion tonnes of chemicals every single year. Now, not all of these are uh, you know, designed chemicals. A lot of them, for example, is the soil that you just saw blowing overhead. All that so 75 billion tonnes of topsoil. It's all chemical. It all has an effect. It affects people's health. It affects their lungs. Uh, you know, it affects their uh, their allergy um, tendencies and things like that. So, all of these chemicals have been displaced by the human beings. Now, the, the amount of chemicals that we have actually emitted is five times larger than our carbon dioxide emissions. You get that. So, our climate impact is only one fifth of our total chemical impact on the planet. So. Uh, Pesticides are just a tiny part of this chemical impact, but they're a very specific part. Let, let's talk about personal choices. Now, I won't buy the milk from the big supermarkets. I won't buy their own brand milk. I'll buy the ones that are a little bit more expensive. Uh, but what about something like eating meat? Uh, what's the impact of eating meat? If you look in the mirror, um, your teeth are designed to eat uh, both meat and plant foods. You know, you you are not a sheep and you are not a wolf. You don't have dog's dentition, you don't have sheep dentition, you've got a mixed feeder's dentition. So that just tells you that for a million years humans have had a mixed diet and we do best, our gut is designed to handle a mixed diet. So I, I'm not one to be a food Nazi and say only eat vegetables or only eat meat or whatever it is. I personally think that grazing animals have a very important part to play um, in, in regenerating the world land area because if you graze sustainably, that's with a small number of animals, you actually bring back the, the desertified the regions of the, of the world ecosystem and you lock up more carbon. So it's the grazing areas of the world, which are 40% of the land area, could actually lock up a phenomenal amount of carbon with sustainable grazing. But are you talking about rangeland animals? What about something like feedlot animals? Yeah, feedlot animals, I've got to say, that's an industrialised system. Um, you're feeding animals causes soil degradation because you're growing all the, all the feed to, to feed to those animals. And candidly, we can't keep on doing that. I mean, if I give you the numbers, FAO says that we're, we're currently eating about 350 million tonnes of meat a year the human species, that's going to 550 million tonnes at current rates of consumption uh, by the mid-century. There's just not enough feed grains in the world to feed that many animals and fish. And fish as well, farm fish. fish. Yeah, farm fish, farm chickens, farm pigs. So, so basically you're either going to have to discover three more North Americas to grow the grain. And if you go on Google Earth... Do you think that's likely? Oh, if you go on Are Google Earth... Find three more new North Americas? <laughs> well, as I say, on Google Earth, you can't find any new no. continents. You know, okay. there's no new continents that haven't been discovered. So it seems unlikely. Uh, unless we melt Antarctica, perhaps. But, uh, I mean, it, it, yeah, so, so growing feed grains to feed animals is a one-way street. It's not going to cut the mustard in terms of feeding human beings. All it's doing at the moment is, is producing cheap industrial meat, which actually reduces the price that real farmers should get for raising sustainable stock on regenerative systems. That they should be getting a much higher price. They should be rewarded for caring for and improving their environment. At the moment, the market is not rewarding them. It's punishing them. So we, we, if, we, if we eat sustainably, you know, we, we will pay $50, $60 for a kilogram of, of, of fillet steak. But that farmer who grew that steak 
is going to get enough income to be able to look after their landscape and to repair it. And this is a critical element. We, the consumer, have to reward good behaviour by farmers and other food producers, sustainable behaviour. It, it's the same with you know, solar energy. We, we, we reward people who produce renewable energy by buying you know, solar cells and things like that. We were, we're rewarding Mr Tesla at the moment, uh, Elon Musk, for, by buying electric vehicles and things like that. So we're, we're, consumers control all of this. It's our consumption patterns that dominate the planet. And we, we, can, we consume about 100 billion tonnes of of material resources every single year. Well, what would you tell our listener uh, if they're going to change their shopping habits, their food buying habits, or their habits in general? But what, what would you do differently? At the moment, it's difficult if you're a consumer to get the right information, although this, this information is available um, on social media mainly. I mean, for example, if you want to know the difference between a sustainable fish and an unsustainable fish when you're in the, in, in the fish shop, um, you can find that information out, but you've got, you've got to do a bit you've of work research. So, yeah. so w what we really need to do is for every single food product in the food uh, supermarket has got a barcode on it. That barcode could actually reflect how much water was embodied in that product or how, sustainably was the, how sustainable was the production system. You're already seeing the differentiation because, look, if, if you go to the, um, uh, the, the egg section in the supermarket, you, there's the factory-produced eggs and there's the, you know, the free-range free eggs. And that's where consumers, consumers did that, not the supermarket. You know, consumers said, we will pay more money to have happy chooks. Uh, and, 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 but now you're seeing that in the meat section. So there's organic grass-fed beef, a bit more expensive, mind you, bit more tasty too, uh, you know, and, 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 and then there's the industrial beef. So, so we, We've got the energy rating now on cars, on houses in Canberra Absolutely. and on white goods. Absolutely. Uh, do you think we should implement something like this on our food labelling? Yeah, I, I, look, the, the scientists have got all the data to do this. All we need to do is for somebody to compile it into a big database that, that, that is reflected in the barcode on the, on the food product in the supermarket. What, what, what about just a simple star rating? Uh, difficult to do. Um, it, it's possible, but it, it's difficult to do. But you, you could do it. At, but the problem with those sorts of things is that um, people cheat, and and they also um, uh, you don't really know what's embodied in the star rating. Uh, so yeah, I guess we've got to make it easy for people, and uh, you've got to make people care in the first place. But. Um, We've, we've been talking about some very daunting problems here, Julian, but uh, it's not like any of this is not known in the scientific community and the solutions we've talked about, the regenerative farming. Is there a package that brings all of this together somewhere? Like the Green New Deal, for example, is an attempt from the US to do yeah. that. Do we need something like that? There's a, the, the, yeah, we do. We do. We, we, we need simple indicators that tell people whether their behaviour is sustainable or not sustainable. Easy ways for them to decide as consumers. But as I say, consumers are now informing themselves because something very magic is happening. The most important development in human evolution is that we are communicating all around a planet at the speed of light via the internet and social media. So we're sharing ideas problems, solutions, all the way around the planet. Now, there's a lot of 
rubbish on the internet. There's a lot of malice on the internet. But people are learning to discriminate between the good stuff and the bad stuff. So this information is already there. You can already find out what foods are sustainable uh, by going on Twitter you, and things like that. Do you have a preferred source that you want to recommend to our listener? Look, uh, if you follow any of the, the you know, things like Food Tank in the United States, they discuss all of these things constantly. Yes, yeah. Okay. They pull together a lot of other food centres that, that are looking at sustainable food. But may I say there's another... So, so this, what is happening is that we are, the human beings for the first time in history, are hooking up at the speed of light. We are starting to think as a species not just as individuals. This is a very exciting time in our development. Well, that's a note of optimism, uh, Julian. I'm very glad to hear that. And kind of relevant to today's conversation is the Ask Fuzzy column, which appears in the Canberra Times and regional papers. And in that, I've talked about barbed wire. Uh, yeah, barbed wire has a, uh, is a simple thing, but it's had a huge impact on the landscape. <laughs> and so we can read about that. Now, do you have any final thoughts? Oh, just uh, from a personal note, very quickly, because we're nearly out of time. But uh, what's your? How do you personally cope with all this? Because you write these books with these really fearsome topics. If you want to solve a problem, you have to understand the problem. Science is the best way to understand that problem. Uh, yes, you've, you, you've got to cope with some, some, some rough stuff about, about what is happening and what we are doing to our planet. But human beings are ex experts at survival. We've been surviving for a million years by looking into the future, seeing problems and coming up with solutions. And we can do that again and again with the ten great threats that are bearing down on us. These problems can be solved with brains, with discipline and with goodwill towards one another. That's a really good optimistic note on which to end. Uh, thank you very much for your time today, Julian. Uh, our guest today, Julian Cripp, and whose latest book is Food or War. Uh, go out and buy it, read it. And next week, uh, we're talking about sustainability. What does sustainability mean? That's our Ask Fuzzy column. Time to go. Thank you, Tom. Thanks very much. Thanks, Julian. Great to hear what you had to say. Thank you. Catch you later.